All right. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Onward, a podcast dedicated to highlighting issues of trans and non-binary singers face today and how choral directors and musicians can make their rehearsal spaces more equitable for all. Delivered to you, you guessed it, in a podcast bite-sized episode. My name is Sammy, and I'm joined by my beautiful co-host once again, Stevie Herner. Hey, everyone. So excited. Yes, and we're actually in person today. Like we we're, are, we're in the same room. We're yeah. Not, we're not we Zoom are today. in the same room. This is this is new for us. Every it all is. of our episodes have been on Zoom, so Stevie's in my yeah. apartment right now. Yeah, we're breaking down <laughs> the COVID boundaries. Yes, we are. And so for today's topic, we have an incredible guest joining with us here today. Um, we have the wonderful, the amazing. Dr. Jason Plon with us on Zoom. <laughs> Hello. Good to see both of y'all. How are you? We're excellent. Doing great, doing great. How is Washington, D.C. and all your activities? It is freezing in Washington, D.C. and it is too hot in Phoenix. So my body is in a constant state <laughs> of movement. Amazing. <laughs> Love that. Oh, why are you in Washington? Z- uh, is it Washington D.C.? Yeah. Yep. There's, There's only one. one. <laughs> that is, that is the- Sam, work. You're doing great. You're doing great, Sam. <laughs> this is for your senior project. You're doing great. <laughs> There's only one Washington. I know there geography. There's one D.C. in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> wait. So wait. So why are you in Washington D.C.? I um I am the artistic director of the Coral Arts Society of Washington. Uh, we just had our first concert of the season this past Saturday where we sang a concert entitled Oh What a Beautiful City where we kind of thought about this indigenous concept called Aloha Aina uh, in which when you are introduced to a place that is new to you the first thing that you do is sing the songs of the ground that you stand on as a way to honor your new community so that was my first concert with that organization really loving it so far um, trying to figure out how to stay warm in this climate. I am failing completely. Um, but It's all about uh, layers, Jace. It's yeah, I know. Layers. I know. <laughs> I know. But I'm loving it. And I'm happy to be here and I'm happy to be speaking with both of you. Cool. And what do you do when you're not being the artistic director for this particular organization? Um, when I'm not doing that, then I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. In which where I serve as the director of choral activities at Arizona State University, where I oversee our graduate program in choral conducting, and I have the reverent duty of conducting our uh, ASU concert <laughs> choir, our flagship ensemble. Um, and you, this is your first year there, correct? It is. It is my first year, and I have to say, I'm loving it. The students are incredible. The community is amazing. Um, every day I wake up and I am just hashtag blessed, you know? Um, <laughs> and when I'm not in Phoenix, then I'm back home in Hawaii as the artistic director for Navai Chamber Choir, a professional vocal ensemble dedicated to the preservation, propagation, and innovation of Hawaiian choral music. Cool. And for our listeners who don't know a lot about uh, your background and what you've contributed to the choral field... Can you talk about the the work that you have done specifically around diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, in the choral field? I know you're on several boards of things and you've presented at conferences and done all the things. So tell us what's going on. 
So I have the honor of serving as chair for the Western region of the American Coral Directors Association, uh, the chair of our Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Um, I also uh, get, I also serve as the director of affinity groups for the National Collegiate Coral Organization. Uh, through my role with ACDA, my job is to essentially make sure that this organization is responsive to the needs of a growing multicultural and diverse pool of membership to ensure that our professional development uh, offerings uh, can speak to the way in which the coral craft is evolving uh, and can also hold uh, our leadership accountable in ensuring that when we create opportunities, when we create conferences, when we put out publications, it's done in ways that are emblematic to who we serve and which actively seeks out who we are not serving uh, and also ensures that what we do is generative, responsive, and done with care and safety for all involved as much as possible. For NCCO, thank you, we try. Um, <laughs> For NCCO, uh, my job as director of affinity groups is just to ensure that there are safe spaces or generative spaces based off of identities that are intersectional and are singular um, uh, to ensure that like folks for women, for um, LGBTQIA plus folk, uh, for um, folks of color, that they have spaces to kind of discuss uh, how to navigate the career of higher education and the and the choral craft. That's that is in, amazing. That's incredible. I do also have to say, um, Dr. Jason Flan, um, you really <laughs> did serve as like a inspiration for me in one of my writing classes. Um, one of our writing classes was one of our prompts was tasked. We were supposed to propose something um, that's um, specific to our field. Um, so I had to write about choral music and my whole entire proposal was to start a choir similar to yours in Hawaii, uh, starting a, um, a Hawaiian indigenous, uh, choir focused choir and oh, choir here in Los Angeles. Um, so I wrote a whole proposal about that. Um, my dad, my dad comes from Hawaii, so it was very, it was something very passionate to me. So I, I just wanted to give a little shout out as like you served as a little inspiration for me hey there. Oh my gosh, that's that's amazing. I hope that that dream will become a reality for you at some point. That's incredible. Thank you so much. Yeah, and if Sammy ever makes that ensemble, they're gonna kill it, absolutely <laughs> kill it. Sammy's a wonderful director on the podium. I've worked with them several times, so. No, stop, stop, keep going. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, I think it's time we move on to <laughs> yeah. our first topic today. Let's talk about some language. We're going to talk about language within choral pedagogy and the choral rehearsals today. So I'll start with a question for the both of you. Uh, I think we'll start with Dr. Saplan. But our first question is, what are some ways that you've seen gendered language used in choral music? Yeah, I'm actually going to go right into spaces that I am not necessarily seeing us talk a lot or hearing us talk a lot about. So. Uh, yeah, we can talk about we can talk about repertoire. We can talk about like, you know, voice identification and those type things like that. But I think a conversation we're not having that we need to start having is how gendered language shows up within the pedagogy of conducting, uh, the mm. pedagogy of gesture, and the pedagogy of like how our bodies 
communicate as facilitators of learning, not necessarily as singers. Um, and so I think doing like a quick, you know, uh, literature review and how gesture and pattern and the what body should look like on the podium uh, from the current textbooks of conducting that we use within our choral conducting classes or in our manifestation of conducting often uh, lies within the assumption that we have four limbs, uh, that we that we carry our center of gravity in the same place, mm. and that um, there is hidden and blatant metaphorical ideals of what it means to be excellent means what it means to be masculine or to present in a masculine way, right? Ah. To conduct with strength, right? Or to use, you know, uh, to to take up as much space as you can, right? Or to um, uh, present in ways that are strong or to conduct uh, this marcato line or to conduct, you know, these particular articulatory passages in a, in a masculine way, I think uh, is an assumption that we have in the pedagogy of conducting. We don't, well, we don't realize that like trans bodies, non-binary bodies have so much of an advantage in communicating what is infinite within gesture, right? Mm -hmm. Or when we think about querying the perspective of conducting means oh, that- I love that. Right, querying the perspective of conducting means that all of us are capable of communicating the infinite of music, right? So it's not necessarily about forgetting who you are or code switching out of your identity to conduct a certain way, right? To me, that's gendered, right? When you lose yourself, when you lose your identity, when you have to code switch out of your authenticity, then you're no longer living your authentic, uh, your authentic self, right? So mm. um, gendered to me means like live within one aspect of your identity and I really think that conducting should ins instead scaffold itself, not about this is what you must mimic. It should start off with this is what you have. How do you maximize the, the ways and the behaviors of your body to communicate this sense of authenticity so that it in turn that. benefits your singers? I absolutely love that. I think that's such a fresh perspective yeah. on uh, conducting gesture. Um, I actually was just teaching a conducting class this morning and uh, we're preparing for their final. So of course it's a piece that has like, you have the strong held fermata moments and then you have like the fast rhythmic mixed meter things going on. And so like the shifts in gesture. And um, I don't know that I've ever heard anyone talk about masculinity and femininity being innate to conducting like i've heard of it in terms of like oh that's a masculine melody versus that's a feminine melody when you look at like classical and romantic music um but i i actually really love that and as you were saying that especially the take up space that that comment that you said really resonated with me because anytime we have this idea of power it's take up as much space as possible. You're filling the void. You're, you, you are, you become large, even if you're a tiny person. And yeah. like, uh, the only thing that comes to mind right now is man spreading. Like, you know, like when, like the masculine way of like sitting down on the couch and the legs go wide and like taking up as much room as possible. 
and that is an inherently masculine thing and and that's that's so powerful and now i'm not going to be able to stop seeing like gendered character in conducting gestures and trying to think of ways that i can like deconstruct that that's amazing i this sounds jace you need to put together a presentation for acda for ncco whatever <laughs> i think i think you could like really that it could definitely shake the foundation of some people's perspective of conducting pedagogy i think that's really powerful mm-hmm. stuff what do you think yeah for sure because i'm in a couple of conducting classes right now and i it's not that i've never felt connected to my body i always just felt conscious of it and how my how my body when i'm conducting doesn't really match the description that my teachers were providing me and mm-hmm. i never really i never really understood why or how i can make how i can change that but this perspective of just querying how like querying the perspective like i loved that i was obsessed with that yeah. um of how we are at the podium really makes me kind of question everything and i think that's that's the foundation of who i am as a musician yeah. is just i want to question everything i mean if you if you look at uh this year um dr trom sparks has taken over chamber singers um is now leading the helm mm-hmm. and her demeanor on the podium i have never heard her raise her voice above like this decibel level she's always speaking very quietly um she doesn't make herself smaller but she's also not trying to be bigger and she is a tiny little human yes like (laughs) itty bitty little human and she's so sweet and so kind but when she gets up on the podium she doesn't become something she's not in order to make us respect or pay attention to her yes absolutely she just is herself and in her calmness and in her energy she exudes strength Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't describe her strong conducting as filling, like taking up space or filling the void or anything, Mm -hmm. any of those descriptors that we have. And I think that, ugh, this is a fascinating little rabbit hole my mind is going down. I love it. I love it. Because like, you know, you know, trans scholar Z. Nicolazzo in the in 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 their book entitled "Trans in College" writes about a phenomena call in which like so many, so many queer folk that are in their own respective processes of becoming and living in their body often go through these periods of disassociation, right? Like Mm -hmm. I know I have in my becoming, Mm -hmm. right? Which I'm not necessarily living in my body or there are moments in life in which in order to feel safe, I have to like exist a little bit out of my body and witness these experiences in which my body is an other. Right. So I think as a crucial component of manifesting our queer joy in the pedagogy of conducting is to ensure that everyone is able to articulate their body on in their own terms, to mm. gesturalize their body on their own terms, in which the model in which they're striving for does not exist in a specified framework as an able-bodied cis white man, but mm. it exists on a process or a framework in which excellence is defined within the students' livingness within their body. Right. Like, I think that's yeah. a mm-hmm. crucial component of how we talk about conducting, because I've been to many conferences in which for many of us, yes, we're looking at the singers, but as facilitators of learning, I know I'm always fascinated with what the conductor is doing. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I have to constantly 
be cognizant about my own biases about their own particular gestural choices. For some people, conducting high is them living within their body, right? Yeah. Because of the limbs that they have, right? We don't know particular injuries they've had. We don't know particular traumatic mm -hmm. experiences they had. Maybe we don't know about psychological components as to what high means to them for their deep culture, for their intersectional self. All I know is that I've been trained throughout my entire life to say that conducting high means that you are conducting like a short woman, right? And that to me is problematic, right? Conducting wow. high for some folks is a manifestation of joy. And if we were to close our eyes yes. and if we were to hear a joyful choir, then who are we to judge? Um, yeah. I think another, uh, another, another moments in which I've seen gendered language, um, again, is within the use of metaphor as pedagogy, right? Like mm -hmm. we don't necessarily, we, we, we're not band directors, right? So we can't say use a, this octave fingering instead of that octave fingering. So when we try to work within the realms of how to articulate, how to navigate tessitura, right? Extremes of tessitura for tenor voices, for soprano alto voices, you know, we tend to rely so much on gendered language to help younger voices mm -hmm. um, explore the extremes of their range. Right. Like, yeah. you know, the amount of times um, in which I've been taught as a tenor of bass to sound more manly and to cover my sound um, yes. as in going up to the top of my range like that never that never connected with me. Not only that, but then it dampens all the upper harmonics and sounds flat anyway. Exactly. So. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Or when we think about like taking an inhalation, right? And talking about, you know, what is the action with my intercostal muscles? What am I actually think about in my in my space of inhalation? I think to avoid a sense of like gendered bias within our metaphor is to allow a plethora of metaphors for our students to engage with. Right. So when we're mm -hmm. thinking about inhaling, what are you inhaling? to raise a soft palate. For some people, it's a bowl of miso soup. For some people, it is apple pie. For some people, it's <laughs> blank. And I feel like offering more options within our metaphoric vocabulary of how to talk about healthful singing um, allows folks to create more culturally responsive connections that are more gender affirming than, you know, uh, in ways that are just gendered. Mm -hmm. I really, yeah, I completely agree with there. Like, I experienced a lot of that in high school. And I feel like this idea of giving gendered metaphors to try to elicit some type of sound comes for, comes at young singers. I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Like, I experienced that numerous times in high school. My choir director loved saying, like, we had to sound like big, fat Russian men in my, in my mm -hmm. tenor bass choir and stuff like that, which is also sizes and all that stuff. And, but I never, I never truly felt comfortable with that wording. Uh, I didn't, I, that, like, to me, that meant nothing. Like, to me, <laughs> like, to me, like, I didn't understand what, she, what, what they wanted from me from that sound. Yeah. Um, and it completely differed from the soprano alto um, course I was in my high school. She was giving them 
other really just weird gendered like like you have to be a girl you have to sound like a lady like a big fat opera singer it's always size it's always fat like to get some like tall to get a, round a full round a full sound. round sound it's always you have to, say yeah. it to be fat which i'm like god forbid we describe it as warm yes <laughs> <laughs> right but i think that's that's a good point stevie it's just like you know food is a powerful metaphor to use i use food often because i think food activates more of our senses and it employs mm. us to think more critically. Um, mm -hmm. I think in terms of like metaphor is just like as a native and indigenous person, I always look to land. Like what is a landform that we could think about to create this mm. particular sound, right? Oh, can cool. you can you have a mountain in your, can you have a mountain? Can you imagine a mountain on that vowel instead of a hill? Um, that, I really love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And of we course, right, there's- imagery. <laughs> of course there's <laughs> repertoire right like there's so much repertoire out there in which soprano alto choruses are framed as like let's sing about daisies and roses and mm -hmm. um, being pretty and things like that and tenor bass yeah. choruses you know are pirates and like let's go to war let's be protectors that type of stuff yes and, right and you know what what i will say is that okay in six in, in circumstances fine that rep that type of repertoire could be appropriate depending on the circumstance that you're in but you don't necessarily want to paint a picture of these are the values that we have as an ensemble and i will we will only sing about these particular types of experiences i think i think there are is a case sometimes in which we sing as the perspective of a cis woman, because I think it's important for singers to sing within their identity and to sing through the lens of storyteller in which we are singing about the respective other. I think it's important mm -hmm. that singers live in their truth and learn how to sing as ally. Um, and so my only hope is that we consider gender as a part of how can we diversify the perspectives of our programming outside of just race, outside of just cultural heritage, but mm -hmm. also we consider more intersectional experiences about, okay, how does race, gender, uh, socioeconomic status, you know, creed and religion, like all play into this ecosystem of perspectives that I can both affirm and expand the perspectives of my singers. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. I think um, you're not going to find any uh, naysayers about that in this particular room. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think perhaps it would be helpful for our listeners to hear some thoughts on uh, for those who are struggling to deconstruct and take away the gendered language from their vernacular and they're like oh it's just my habit i'm used to saying women i'm used to saying gentlemen or whatever mm -hmm. the case may be like how what do you say to them that might help them to better internalize the deconstruction of those terms and uh being more thoughtful and proactive about it instead of always reactionary? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I think it starts off first and foremost by not necessarily thinking about this change in behavior 
as something to always avoid or something to feel mm. anxious about. Like I think mm. first and foremost, it should be framed as like, this is a conscientious step that I'm taking to ensure that all of my students are seen in responsive ways. Um, I think one of the best ways to start is to frame the entire perspective of your students, of your pedagogy on the precipice of what is gender neutral, unless, and to allow students to, you know, as you're building relationships with them, to add more nuance to their identity of you, with you. What are some examples of, of gender neutral language that you could use in place of uh, typical gendered, like, all right, boys and girls or whatever? Right, so like, unlike, I, I always frame my introduction to spaces and understand that every student goes by pronouns they, them, unless they correct me otherwise. Right. So <laughs> I, I think that's important. So that students then come up to be like, oh, by the way, I go by she, her or he, him. Right. So that that mm -hmm. builds that connection. I think instead of starting classes about, hey, boys and girls, I think saying the word y'all is yes. is important. I think the words yeah. um, like folks are great to use. Learners, singers, conquerors of song, incredible <laughs> humans, um, yes. majestic melody makers. Um, Ooh, all important, right? Like this allows yeah. us to be creative. This allows us to refer to our students in joyous and joyful ways um, and to allow the connection uh, between facilitative learner, learning and learner uh, to constantly be constructed. Because when we start framing things through a gender neutral way, we put the onus on the students to build a relationship with us and for them to create the cyclicity of nuance so that, you mm -hmm. know, in times moving forward, by me honoring the perspective of gender neutral, that student also at any point may change their pronouns, may right. Um, undergo a series of uh, undergo a process of becoming or a transition in which because of my subscription to gender neutral language, you know, um, they can they can transition or they can become in a safer way. Um, and the, the the door is always open. I've said this already too about ensuring that our metaphor our dis our description of vocal pedagogy phenomena um, either ensures a diversity of gendered language. So if you're gonna say sound like Jennifer Coolidge, offer more options too. <laughs> sound like Jennifer Coolidge. Or can you sound like Nick Lachey, but with a puckered vowel? Or could you also sound like <laughs> Austin, Justin Bieber going down a hill, right? So offer a whole perspective of options when you're thinking about an individual who's tied to a specific gender, right? Yeah. yeah. Or just offer like offer metaphors that are tied to food, offer metaphors that are tied to landforms, offer metaphors mm -hmm. that are tied to, you know, specific kinesthetic phenomena. Um, mm -hmm. so that, you know, gender is not just a habit, right? Gendered language is not a habit, but they see diversity of gender and they also see that their what they're singing, their voice is not innately gendered. Their voice contains multitude and is an infinite and is infinite. Yeah, that's, that's so beautiful, Jace. Oh my gosh, I hope this so is helpful. <laughs> no, this is incredibly helpful. I also want to hear a choir of Jennifer Coolidge's. Like, I feel like that would be, <laughs> that would be fabulous. <laughs> yeah, I think that would I'm here for it. be something I'd watch. else. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I just wanted to point out how um, you constantly talk about joy, whether that be just queer joy, mm-hmm. the joy of like making music. And I just think that's just so beautiful how that yeah. is kind of like the forefront of who you are as a musician is to ensure that whatever whatever piece the students are doing, whatever space they're in, as long as that has to be filled with joy and love. So I, I, I thought that was just a cool perspective that you have on a lot of the answers that you gave um, during this podcast today. Thank you. It's important. I mean, like, to be to be a part of the LGBTQIA plus community, like during a time like this outside of the rehearsal hall can be scary. It can be violent. It can be terrifying. And I think it's really important that if we are, if we have the responsibility to facilitate learning or to facilitate a space, what we, what I know what I can offer is two hours in which the singer is safe and which the singer is joyful in which the singer sees their identities as strengths and that to me is what the goodness the choral craft can bring oh hey it's me your favorite host of this podcast don't tell stevie that was the incredible dr jay Saplan with us on our third episode if you want to catch more keep listening on episode four where we'll be talking about voice placement in choral music thank you so much